T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This time on Vet Story. So my office was in Brooklyn, but I had domain over the whole city and actually tri-state area. I went out of state to do uh, anything that had a nexus to terrorism. Your partner driving a car, you running on foot after him, trying to cut him off and meet him in the middle, all kinds of things like that. We have a special assignment. We want to know if you guys are interested in this. And he gives us a very brief overview of this. And I'm like, I'm totally in. And believe me, if somebody punches me in the face, I'm good with it, but I'm punching you back. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, as we heard in the intro there, this interview is going to be interesting. We'll meet the Marine Corps veteran slash New York City intelligence cop slash author, Sergeant Chris Strom. And after a full career as an NYPD cop, an interrogator, and a guy who's chased some of the biggest bad guys in New York after 9-11, he'll talk to us about his journey to Iraq where he came face-to-face with terrorists. It's all in his incredible new book. Brooklyn to Baghdad. An NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. Sergeant Chris Strom. Chris, how are you? Very good, thanks. Glad you're here, man. And as I was looking through the press release that came with this book, tell me a little bit about what you were. Uh, I was a New York City police officer uh, for over 20 years. Uh, started out as a, most people do, as a cop on patrol. From there, I went to uh, anti-crime, which is a plainclothes unit. I did that for about two years. Anti-crime. Anti-crime. So basically, um, it's a, at a precinct level in plainclothes, and you address uh, violent crimes occurring within the precinct. So robberies, assaults, stolen cars, carjackings were popular at the time. Really, kind of the visual I'm getting is... The law and order kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, like suits, interrogations, perps, really horrific crimes that you have to follow up on in that tight window of 48 hours after it's occurred. Exactly. And more than that, it was self-generated activity. In other words, you weren't a a shark feeding off the radio. And gun arrests were a big part of our job as well. So you were going out and basically doing what has now become such a taboo subject, uh, stop, question, and frisk. And it was a very effective program. It's a shame that it's been watered down to what it is today. It's a mere shell of what it used to be. But that was part of the primary techniques that we used. We would see something that didn't seem right, and we would aggressively uh, pursue these people. We would interview them. A lot of times before we even got out of the car, they'd take off running, foot chase, you know, uh, car, one your partner driving a car, you running on foot after him, trying to cut him off and meet him in the middle, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, I actually uh, got to live my fantasies out uh, in real life in the NYPD. That's amazing. And then we retired. Yeah, I retired out of the uh, intelligence division. I did uh, counterterrorism investigations for the last five years. I was a section leader. So my office was in Brooklyn, but I had domain over the whole city and actually tri-state area. I went out of state to do uh, anything that had a nexus to terrorism. Oh, wow. So you were were then looking at interviewing suspects that had 
internet connections to terrorism, leads that somehow made leads. them seem as though they were involved with terror cells. Exactly. A combination of many things. But yes, uh, so some of the things, to give an example, there would be an explosion in the subway station. That would be a live response. So I would roll out with my team. Uh, we'd you know interview people. We'd actually interview people. That sounds like a novel idea, uh, but it's something that the NYPD lives and breathes and dies by. You have to get out from behind your desk and actually make physical contact with somebody and talk to somebody. You couldn't just say, it's being reported that it was a transformer explosion. Well, that, that may be true, but did the transformer explode because water had gotten into it, or was there something more to the story? So, you know, I'm just giving that as an example. No, but right, so you guys physically had to go there, to go. inspect it, take a look around, and then all of a sudden it becomes law enforcement side of investigative journalism. Exactly. Who are you? What did you see? Why are you standing here? Right. What do you know? Hey, right. this person's upset. Let's talk to her. Right. What did you see five minutes before the explosion? Well, I saw a guy standing uh, who looked like a track worker by the transformer, but about five minutes before the explosion, I saw him running down the, the platform. You know, oh, well, obviously you're not going to get that information if you're behind the desk. You have to go out there and talk to people. And I worked for a maniac named Commissioner Cohen, who was an ex-CIA officer that was brought in by the NYPD back in, I want to say, 2002, shortly after 9-11. Uh, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, he wanted to know in real time what's going on. And, you know, we had Nextel Direct Connect phones, and he would call me on my phone, uh, or more likely, rather, he would have one of his subordinates call me and say, hey, this is so-and-so from Commissioner Cohen's office. What's going on? He wants to know. And if you stood there with a, well, I don't know, uh, you would be replaced. Oh wow! So he wanted. So he wanted fast attack guys on the ground that were able to, to start generating intel for him immediately. And and if it, if it got reported on the news before you reported it, you were out because the you know the, the media would would obviously uh, descend upon a scene like that. Depend, I'm not yeah. just using that sure. as an example. There's many examples: suspicious packages, uh, odors, smoke, all kinds of things. You name it, and they're going to get there. And if he's getting his news from them instead of you, meaning me or my detectives on the ground, that's a problem. That's a problem. Now I know in the intelligence community, um, facts and real stories are really kept close to the vest and you don't go around telling those stories very often. Right. But in the days, months, years after 9-11, heightened, heightened state of awareness in New York City. I remember being there many a times and just never feeling better about seeing law enforcement just everywhere. Right. Were there significant things that you investigated in the months and years after 9-11 that maybe we don't know about but were damn sure related to terrorism? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tell you, to be honest with you, the NYPD is bar none the go-to Google of human intelligence, period. Anybody wants to argue that with me or wants to debate it with me, I'm happy to have that conversation. The data and the amount of collection in terms of human, talking to people, knocking on doors, filling out reports and putting it into a database system is unimaginable. So I'll just give you an example, and I'm not a mathematician. Thousand detectives, they're required to have three, three contacts a day at minimum. That doesn't count their actual case involvement. So you could have a case and have even more than that, but let's just keep it simple and say it's three. So you have a thousand detectives making three physical contacts, three separate reports times seven days a week times two times a day, because there's generally two shifts, usually the midnight shift, because, of, because people are sleeping for the most part. They're not going to be doing any door knocking. But definitely a day shift and a second and a second shift are going out. So that's six times a thousand. So that's, you know, roughly 6,000 pieces of, of collection times seven times 52 times however many years we are now past 9-11, 18. 
And that's wow. just that's just ver that's very modest yeah. in terms of collection. So the database and the ability to find people, locations, suspicious activity, patterns, link analysis is just incredible. And so when we were once looking from other people who had to outsource that information, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have become the repository of that information, period. Everybody wow. looks to the NYPD intelligence division's databases for real human intelligence worldwide, <sighs> worldwide. So safe to say, based on that intelligence, we have stopped bad guys from following up on 9-11 and maybe most Americans never even knew about it? Listen, it's never 100%. I know the people that I work with, who, by the way, made me look like a superstar as a section leader, um, are dedicated. Um, and, and if anybody was a slacker, and I didn't have any, I was very fortunate and blessed to have some really, really super, super uh, dedicated and loyal people. But if anybody was a slacker, in in the system in the intelligence division, they were weeded out very quickly. Wow! You know, if you if you submitted a report and then you know because you're this oversight, I'm reading your report. Let's say hypothetically, you work for me, and you know I'm going to ask some basic questions about your report. Who did you speak to? When did you speak to him? Is there a cell phone contact number where I could ask this person some additional questions? Because there's always more questions. And if you stuttered and stammered and said, uh, 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 "There's a problem," that means that you didn't actually talk to this person, or if you did, you did a lousy job. So you got to go. That makes me feel so safe and at the same time raises the hairs in the back of my neck because, you know, as as an American, we were all changed that day on 9-11. But to think it was just those 11 or those 18 guys, you're saying like there was a healthy amount more than oh, yeah. that. And yeah. Yeah. you were you were on their scent from yes. Jump Street. Not And not just me. Within the intelligence division, there's so many other clandestine operations going on. The person I work for, uh, Vinnie Mara, who's a deputy inspector. You know, in, in the pecking order and chain of command, he might have ranked like maybe 10 or 12. But really, to be honest with you, he's like the secretary that runs a major organization, like the radar. He knows everything. And he was in charge of all these special projects and divisions. And he was my boss. So a nice guy you couldn't work for. I, 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 in fact, he wrote the foreword to this book. So we're very, very good friends. But he was so unassuming. But people just had undying loyalty for this guy. And he... He, he got it back because people loved him and they respected him and they went out and did this job. But some of the things that people do in the intelligence division, you know, they're right there on the Patriot Act. It's, you know, it's very, very, it's, it's not gray, but it's very, very close. And most people would just fall out of their chair if they knew the amount of work that actually goes on in the NYPD intelligence division wow. on a daily basis, honestly. And as far as other bad guys, if I could ask, are we talking dozens, hundreds, thousands? Well... <laughs> You know, a lot of times what happens is we intercept these people before anything really bad happens. A lot of these people are, because now because of the internet and everybody has seen this over and over again, they're motivated by that. But let's say one of the programs involved overhearing somebody talk about something. Um, and we would have people that were actually undercovers. When I say undercover, I mean deep undercover. Like, I don't know who they are. They have a handler who's a, an official NYPD detective. This person never sets foot in an official police department facility, probably doesn't even live in the state. These are all euphemisms and, and maybes. I'm not going to go into specifics. No, right, right. And those people are in certain certain walks of life, in certain areas of employment, in certain institutional places. And they're reporting and they're collecting. And because of that, that's how a lot of times that's how we become aware. Then there's also the the, the generation of people who, like the, the crazy lady with six cats, Hey, I live next door to this guy, and he's making me nervous. Well, what does he do, actually? Well, I don't know, but 
He's got a lot of friends coming in and out of the house. And oh, by the way, he's Middle Eastern. Now, for us to profile, which is has become such a dirty word, right. we can't just go and knock on somebody's door if it's generated by the police just because simply because the guy's Middle Eastern and we don't like the way he looks. Sure, sure. Okay, which is obvious. But if it's generated from the civilian side, we have an obligation if there is potentially a nexus, and that's the, that's the the test. Could there potentially be a nexus to terrorism with this person next door? And then, of course, there's some investigation. There's some surveillance. Maybe it is nothing. Maybe she is just a crazy lady with cats. But maybe there is something going on. And by the way, we ran a few plates from some of these people that came, and guess what? They all seem to be coming from New Jersey. And why are they traveling all the way from New Jersey to see this guy every Monday night at 8 o'clock or whatever it is, whatever it might be? And so that's how an investigation starts. So you have the civilian generation and then the proactive police investigation where there's deep undercovers and things like that. Listen, anyone that's a cop, anyone that's a soldier, first responder, you you can't imagine the gratification that you get out of this. If you if you enjoy this work, yeah, it's like every day, like I can't wait to get to work. Because it's 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 something that if you pick whatever is your favorite thing, it could be water skiing or jumping yeah. in, jumping out of an airplane. Whatever gives you that thing, this gives me that thing. And and I would I would venture to say probably ninety five percent of the people that are involved in the intelligence division that are street people, it's this is their thing. They love this. This is a job that yes, it's great to get paid for it, but to be quite honest with you, I think they would show up anyway. If it were me, I, you know, I'm finding a porch to sit on. I'm finding a beach in Florida to go have some drinks at. You know, I mean, I, th- that's what I'd be doing. You do the exact opposite thing. And let me just read from the press kit I have. Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. You, sir, detail your experience as a member of the most effective counterinsurgency team ever assembled. You take us on a ride. You take us behind the scenes at the front lines. As you and forensic exploration team, codenamed Phoenix, respond to IED explosions and gather intel from terrorists. So you're now in Iraq, applying your law enforcement skills on the front lines. How in the hell did you even get there? I mean, what made <laughs> you want to go do this after what you just described? Well, it, it's it's kind of a long story, but I moved to Roanoke, Virginia, as you say, thinking, well, I'm going to put this all behind me. And just and just to be clear, I left when I left the intelligence division, I left on, on a high note. It's almost like I felt like on top of the world. I had uh, a great going away party, uh, people that I love that I still keep in touch with to this day, uh, phenomenal people. And I thought, yeah. I'm just going to get involved in a construction business and everything's going to be fine. And that lasted about nine months. And I, I was, I, I was like, I can't do this. It's just, it, I can't do this. But, but boredom. It's, it was incredibly boredom. And the person I was involved with, you know, we, we had formed this company together to do construction, which I love doing. Um, I yeah. love, I love working with my hands. I love working on uh, a car with my son, Christian. Um, there's Flipping a lot. A house. I, yeah, I watch HGTV all yeah, the time. Oh my Property God. My, brothers. My wife, would... my wife and I are sick about shows like that, you right, know, uh, right. um, and I love doing that stuff, but it just, it wasn't doing it. And so, um, I ended up leaving this, uh, business that I was involved with and I had applied for a job and I was actually in the basement with a paintbrush painting, which I really don't like painting, but I'm actually pretty good at it. <laughs> and I get a phone call and I'm like, I think I got paint on my hand. Do I grab the phone and... 
So I end up answering the phone, and, and it turned out to be this uh, guy from uh, MPRI, which is Military Police Resources International. said, hey, I'm reading over your resume. Is this Chris? And I said, yeah, that's Chris. He goes, uh, listen, um, can I talk to you for a minute? I, I see that you applied for this job. And I'm like, I got to be honest with you. I applied for quite a few jobs, so can you tell me a little bit about it? So, <laughs> you know, so he tells me about the job, and he says, you know, you'd be in, in Iraq. You'd be a, a direct advisor to either a brigade commander or somebody at headquarters and giving them advice on how to practically apply, like, police or law enforcement techniques to counter their insurgency. So are you interested? And I said, I'm, I'm way more than interested. So um, that's how it all started. From there, I end up going to uh, Lansdowne, Virginia for a two-week orientation and an inboarding of what it is that I'm actually going to be doing. And I'm there with probably about 35 other people. So probably at the midway point of the second week, so probably you know 13 days, 12 days into it, I get grabbed and two other guys get grabbed and they say, come with me. So initially we're thinking, and I'm thinking, it's probably not a good thing, but I, you know, I go and this is the, <laughs> this is the project manager. And he closes the door and he says, relax, you guys aren't in trouble. And he says, we have a special assignment. We want to know if you guys are interested in this. And he gives us a very brief overview of this. And I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm totally in. So now it, we go from just being like an advisor and I guess occasionally breaking the wire to where I have over 110 combat missions. The team collectively who were masterful, not just me, everybody involved in this project, you know, we rolled up 91 HVTs. Tier one and tier two. It got to the point that not only were we rolling up the bad guys, the baddest of the bad, that we would roll them up. I would interrogate them on scene. We would drop them off at our own uh, detention facility on Fob Falcon. We had a row. That's where I was at, from just okay. south of Baghdad. That we would hear the Blackhawk, and then we would see the guys with all the Gucci gear, and we go, "Oh, it's SF." And you know, just by happenstance, we'd, we'd be walking one way, they'd be walking another way, and they're like, "Hey, yeah, could you tell us where the detention facility is?" Because we rolled up one of their guys. Oh, wow. So now, you know, while the team that we supported is very happy because they look like superstars, everybody's happy. SF is not happy. Yeah, well, I mean, because they were trying to, what, work intel from that source? And and, and, and and their colonel, I'm sure, is asking them, you know, how is it that the gang that can't shoot straight with a bunch of 48-year-old men? They're <laughs> rounding up these people off the field. You know, what is, what is going on with you guys? <clears throat> Excuse me. So there was the good and the bad, but... Um, getting back to your question, that's that's pretty much what happened. I go to a briefing in D.C., actually um, in in Crystal City, and they bring us into a skiff and they they detail yeah, the plan. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, um, I'm in. This this is uh, I'm in. So I'm like my adrenaline is, is already pumping, and I'm not even boots on the ground yet. And from that, we go to another train up for, that lasts probably for about another. Got to be had to be at least two and a half, maybe three months, uh, and that took place in. Roswell, New Mexico, and then the second phase took place at Fort Hood in Texas, and finally we get out of C-17 and we're you know outbound, and then we get get on the ground, and then from there, we're trying to find a conventional army group that's going to want to work with us because after all, you know who are these guys? Like you know you're here to tell me how to do this. I I got this kid. I've been doing this already for three years. Well, you just got here. Take it easy, you know. So. Uh, <laughs> Not to mention the fact that you and I are a uh, mature variety. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, there's a little salt in the pepper here on my side. And, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're uh, looking good. But yeah. uh, I'm guessing you're not, you know, fresh out of boot camp. Exactly. I see you're wearing the Marine pin. Yeah, yeah. I, I joined in 1978, um, five, year, uh, five days after I turned 17. I got permission from my parents. 
I was in the Marine Corps from 1978 to 1982, honorably discharged. I got out as a, as a corporal. But yeah, uh, I had all the yelling and screaming and the uh, trash can getting thrown down the alleyway and uh, you yeah, know, yeah, all, yeah, that, yeah. all the madness. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm sitting there at 17 and I don't even know if I ever slept over a buddy's house. And I was like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> This is this is not what I wanted. I don't think so, but um, I managed to survive. Thank God. Yeah, right on. It is an experience, and I was Navy boot camp, so you yeah. know the closest I ever got was watching, uh, you know, Arlie Ermy scream at the yeah. guy about a jelly donut. Well, but, those guys were real. But from what I understand, having talked to Arlie Ermy, that was a hundred percent what the oh, experience yeah, yeah. was like. I, you know, it, it it was one of those things where you think you know because again, it, it, we've seen movies or we've seen yeah. d- depictions yeah. of people. But when you're standing there and the guy is literally like screaming at you and you know what he had for breakfast or for lunch, right? You feel the heat from his breath. From his bre- and, yeah, and, and he walks up to you and, you know, they, and it was true to form. You know, where are you from? And I, was, and I was from New York and now I'm in South Carolina. I'm like, I don't even want to say the word New York. So I'm saying Long Island, sir, you know, because I don't even want to. He goes, well, you're not going to make it. Like he screams this loud. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it. He said, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. Pretty funny. So now, after you're out of your law enforcement career and you're down there in Lansdowne, Virginia, was there a re-indoc? Did you have to go through any other sort of... Because, I mean, I'm talking... Before you deployed to go to the, the interrogation thing in this book... Yeah. You're a mature man. Yeah. <laughs> You've already lived your full life. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to go back and climb walls and run through... You um, know, the- there was Yeah, there was some physical aspects to it. Most of it was um, formation, CQB, cl- you know, close quarter battle. Oh, okay. Uh, marksman- heavy marksmanship. We sh- but they didn't run you back through boot camp. Oh, thank God, no. No, okay. no, no, no. And I got to be honest with you, most of the people... I, I like to say that I, I have maintained my physicality, physicality rather... Um, for the most part of my life, I'm a gym rat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. some of the guys, not so much that were there. You know, and some of the guys, clearly their best days were behind them. But I'm, I, I mean, I'm in the gym five, six days a week if I can get in there. Right. Um, but some of these guys, no. But yeah, but mostly tactics. So CQB uh, and marksmanship, pistol, transitioning. Right. You know, um, a lot of driving. Uh, we went to a, a driving course, which was excellent. Um, was it the one they call Crash Bang? I don't know if it was that, but there was a lot of crashing and banging, and, yeah. and we're on a and a, a big airfield. So no matter what, like no matter how bad things got, the car wasn't going to flip over. Nobody got hurt, but it was it was fun and it was exciting and it was definitely um, a good school. That say. is so cool. Definitely I've, a good school. I've got some family that have been employed at Langley. Okay, so okay, so yeah, the farm, I've kind of yeah. heard about the yeah, yeah I've yeah. sort of heard about the crash bang and heard about some of the schools they go to. Yeah, another family member's Secret Service. So okay, it's, uh, awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. Uh, you know, how they train you guys. Yep. Getting back to your time over there, and I'm, I'm going to leave most of it for the book. Again, the book is Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. How accurate is it that it's a shit show over there sometimes? Oh, it's 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 100% accurate. I'll, I'll give you one example, and there are many, and they're, they're detailed in the book, but um, we were on the base. Actually, I was on the phone with my wife. They had these trailers where you could make outgoing phone calls and um, I'm literally on the phone with my wife and the base gets attacked mortar rounds coming over over the wall and um, three people died as a result of it on the base on Fob Falcon God bless and um, so now the uh, the base has the howitzers I think they're 155 I'm not familiar with the the exact uh, ordinance that they threw but they threw out some howitzer rounds and apparently Hopefully, killed some bad people because they were able to pinpoint where the uh, the incoming rounds came from. 
So uh, everything you know, goes all clear, and then the next day we're tasked with going out and doing an operation. So I'm assigned to a unit that I'm not familiar with, with my team, and I'm doing what I normally would do, would be knocking on doors. And um, the lieutenant that was there uh, gets a hold of some uh, kid on a scooter and says, I need to talk to the sheikh. Now, each mahala has its own sheikh. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the sheikh is either, it's a passed down position, it's not necessarily a religious position, but he's viewed as a person of, of importance within this mahala. I don't know who made him the sheikh. I don't know if it was like I say, I don't know. But the boy rides away on the scooter. He comes back with this older gentleman who is the sheikh. First, he asked him, how many people died? At first, it was six. Next thing you know, it's 11. I watched him hand him $11,000 in US $100 bills. Just peeled them off and handed to him on unverified body count death. Now, whether it's right or wrong, the bottom line is we lost three guys. He killed three people. This happened in your mahala, and if you're the sheikh, you're kind of responsible for this activity. Or at least you could direct me to who is. Exactly. That doesn't even factor in. That doesn't even factor in because the brigade commander is more concerned with his position and how he's viewed with people in Iraq than he is about the safety and security of his own men. If somebody wants to argue that with me, I'm happy to have that conversation too. But wow. this is not what I heard. This is what I saw. Man, and and that speaks to those ROEs. I mean, oh. you know, this is what, 06, 07, 08? This, I mean, this is, is, is pre-surge? 08. No, okay, was, so this is during surge. Yeah, this is during the surge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mm. this whole program was designed to try and catch up because, you know, this was a counterinsurgency. It was a different type of warfare. Yeah. They're hiding among civilian populations. And by the way, by the time I got there, to just, just so people understand, the, the majority of the deaths related to soldiers and coalition forces was not small rounds fire. It was Iranian EFPs. So you're, the chances of you being killed while out on a dismounted patrol from a sniper was probably hovering around 10 to 10%. Okay, still real, still a real threat, and you had to be conscious of it. And again, it's situation-driven too, which AO were you operating in? No, so right. I mean, some places were... might be worse than others. So I'm not going to blanket state that. But the majority of the people that were being killed were being killed by an EFP that went right through the side of an MRAP and came out the other. That's how they were being killed. And so because of that, you know, the incentive now is to, to find these people that are part of this cell because now they're getting financial and material support from Iran. And, you know, something has to be done about this because we're not going to, the army is not going to just stop doing operations because they're getting killed, unfortunately, driving down the road. So I, I make that point because that's why we were there. We weren't there to engage the enemy. We were there to take out the insurgency that was killing Joe and, and, and our coalition forces. And you've said so much, but every time I hear the word Iranian influence, uh, man, don't we dance around that? Oh, we, my gosh. We dance around that so much in policy. I wrote the human reports based on interrogation of these people. Okay, I know about Iranian influence. I know because I have the physical pictures of it. I have the actual statements from people that told me about their affiliation. So it's it's undeniable. And we had a person there, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but some people might be less familiar with, Utada al-Sadr. Sadr City. Sadr City. And we would have targets that we knew about that were coming in, causing the problems in our battle space, and retreating to Sadr City, and we could not action those targets. Period. Mm. You're not going into Sadr City. It became basically a, a safe city, like what's going on here in the United States, where they have sanctuary cities. They were basically had a sanctuary city for terrorists 
The Army was not going to go in there. They were not going to go in there. And believe me, if somebody punches me in the face, I'm good with it, but I'm punching you back. Yeah. You, you know, this is, you know, like, time out. We got to get these guys. They can't They can't go on the premise that they can come here and kill our, our kids, our sons and daughters. Uh, you know, there's not going to be some kind of punishment for that or some right. kind of action. But that's exactly what, and that's demoralizing. Yeah. That's demoralizing on many, many, many levels. And it's not, listen, I want to be clear about this also. Nobody loves the soldier more than me. This is not uh, an, an indictment against the Army or the Marine Corps oh, or Special Forces. The, I'm, I am so close to some of, many of these people that I, I, it's past 10 years that I've, go to, I've gone to their uh, parties. I went to a retirement party for Sergeant Dave Peluso just this past February, who's very prominent in this book. The guy that was the number two, uh, two IC on my team, retired um, 10th group. Special Forces guy, Adoni Paletica. He's coming up to my book signing next week. So I'm, I love these guys. So that's never in question. What I don't love is people that don't want to take it to these people after they kill one of your own men, because that's foreign to me. Because in the NYPD, if you shoot a cop and he gets injured or he's dead, no one's going home until somebody's in handcuffs or that, that guy's dead. That's it. Now, people would say, well, Chris, that's, you're, being, you're exaggerating. I am not exaggerating. I am not exaggerating. And when you get in a situation where you see this happening to these kids and you get attached to these kids, you love these kids. Yeah. And I call them kids because of my age. Not They're not kids. They're clearly they're, they're young men. No, but yeah, I mean, you, you get attached to them. <clears throat> you feel for these people. When you deployed, you were their father's age. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. You were there when Muqtada al-Sadr was being interrogated. Uh, I just finished a documentary this year called To War and Back. One of my bros that's in it that we followed and we talked about his whole story was Sergeant Boone Cutler, 82nd Airborne, Army Psyoper, and he was in Sadr City. Yeah. And toughest days of his life. I mean, uh, warfighter through and through, could handle it, but was given a task that was so incredibly difficult given the rules of engagement and the whole design of the way we fight wars and the way we chase our enemies that you just described. It's like validation for everything he's ever told me. Chris, man, I, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing that. So many stories. Uh, is there any funny or any sort of interesting thing that that uh, happened while you were over there? Any any light moment that, uh, you know? You, you know, there there wasn't a lot of really funny stories. Some, some of the things that were going on there, you know, to, to the outsider might seem funny. But uh, there's one story I've been telling quite often. Um, we had a, a mission at, at an Iraqi police station, and that's always a sensitive thing. And every time we would go, uh, there would be fallout. The colonel would be upset because this was his guy. But meanwhile, his guy's got people part of uh, Jaishi al-Mahdi or, you know, uh, uh, al-Qaeda insur insurgents within the police department himself. So this one particular mission, I didn't want to go on. Nobody wanted to go on. And luckily, uh, our vehicles were down for maintenance, so uh, we couldn't actually go. But the guy that's the number one guy in charge of the unit, um, he wanted to go and he was pushing for this mission. So I'll fast forward. The we Eventually, our vehicles come back and we get out on the X. And the organic army that's already there saying, we're having a hard time getting PID on who this guy is. We think we know who it is. Can you help us out? So I'm standing there now with the number one guy. And he's debating with me. He's going, I don't think it's this guy. And I'm going, it is this guy. And I go, but what do I know? I mean, you know. You know, I, I I didn't watch a John Wayne movie and think I'm a Green Beret. You watched a little Law and Order. You 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 could you got this. You got this. Your your judgment is that clearly better than mine. So anyway, 
I go into the office of this police station and I ask to see the commanding officer. He doesn't want to come out. He's sleeping. I'm telling telling the the subordinate guys, the uh, other Iraqi police officer, I'm like, I don't really care. Wake him up. I need to talk to him. And eventually he comes to his office and his face is covered, my right hand to God, with white cold cream. And I'm looking around like to see, am I getting punked? Is there somebody <laughs> with a camera that is like, you know, they waited for us. You know, I didn't want to go on this mission. My, my number one guy who's in charge of this team is breaking my chops saying this is, this is, uh, you know, this is not the guy. And so, and I start to talk to him and I had made it a practice. I always took pictures of everybody I talked to because I would coincide the picture with the actual human report or the interview report or the interrogation report because how else could you know who this person is? Right, right. You know right. what I mean? And he's going, no, 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 don't take my picture. Don't take my picture. And I go, click. I took his picture anyway. <laughs> and uh, I get we get back to the base and it becomes like a big, big problem. The colonel's like, that picture has to be disposed of immediately. And I'm like, you know, and this is, you know, you have to remember, this is 2008. So obviously we had the internet. Um, people were posting pictures. This is clearly not a picture you're going to send home to your family, you know, right. on, on, on the on an open source, you know, uh, internet. <laughs> but nonetheless, I really, I really wanted to like share this and make some kind of like funny notes about this picture. But that was, you know, and, oh, and by the way, I was right. Turned out, turned out, <laughs> he was guy, not the guy. It, it was the guy. He it just, was, he just it, didn't want to be ID'd. He just didn't want. Well, and there's more to the story than I, but I, but I, I won't bore you with it. But I ended no, up taking right. him into an. A, a secondary interrogation facility on the base on Five Falcon, and and I don't want to describe what we did, but we actually uh, and and nothing um, in terms of uh, physicality. But what right, we right. do is to, to actually learn who he really is. We were able to determine with with a ninety eight degree certainty that it was him, that he was in fact the guy that I'm arguing with, the number one guy that it it, it can't possibly be him. He's a jundi. He can't possibly be him. <laughs> He's. He's trying to go white face so you don't recognize yeah, him. It's it's <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. Look, Casper the friendly ghost. I know it's you, all right? I mean, I can see it. That's great. Oh, great stuff. Chris, um, I could talk for hours and still not get enough of your life and your experiences. I thank the hell out of you for everything you've done from your days with the NYPD and the things you've done to keep us safe and the things we'll probably never talk about openly with a microphone on to the things you did over there in Iraq. I only wish there was an answer to all of this. I only wish there was an ending. I only wish that we had a solution for all this. But I damn sure take away from this time with you that guys with your experience, I wish were there every single day of the year. I only wish there were more NYPD investigators, interrogators, people from criminal intelligence that could go over there and help us win this fight because it doesn't seem it's ever going to end. No. And I don't think they're ever going to quit making bad guys. But, no. But what you've been able to do, your contributions are just incredible. And uh, you can read all about them in the book, Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. Christopher Strom, thank you so much, man. Thank you, sir.